Hello, this is Kente from IndieRadio.org. Um, I want to apologize uh, for the uh, the audio in the beginning part of this podcast. Um, the first 12 minutes, there is some background noise, but um, after the at the about the 14 minute mark, it will be just fine. So please bear with us. The, the reason why we left it in is because that early information was very important and vital. So you have to forgive us. It, it you know, that it is what it is. So uh, I hope you enjoy and uh, tell us what you think about this episode. It's movie time, and we're back again. And this, uh, and today it is August the third, and. Goodness, it felt like August the 4th all day, but no, it's August the 3rd, definitely. <laughs> and with me today is our, my amazing uh, co-host, Kente. Hey, Kente. Hey, how you doing? Uh, man, it's uh, been quite a day to, today, but I'm glad that I'm here with you and excited about talking to our guest tonight. Absolutely. I'm like completely excited about talking to our guest tonight and cannot wait. And our amazing guest tonight is Stephen Kaplan. Of Rainstorm Entertainment. Hello. Hi, buddy. So, how are you doing? I'm excellent. Excellent. Good way to start the week by being on your radio show. So, thanks for having me. No, thank you for coming. It's like we much appreciate that. Absolutely. Kente, would you like to give them the number that they can dial in for us? Too? Sure, of course. Um, you know, of course, we always encourage participation. And the way that you can participate is by dialing our call-in number. And our call-in number is um, area code 323-522-4601. Once again, that's 323-522-4601. Another way you can participate is going to our website. And that website is indyradio.org. That's indyradio.org. Come into our chat room and, uh, you know, don't, don't be scared. You can talk to us. So how is the weather, Stephen, also where you're at? Well, you know, we're here in uh, Hollywood, about two blocks from Paramount Studio. And it's been hot and humid all day, so it's nice to be back in my nice, cool, air-conditioned live-work loft where we do all of our creative uh, magic. Oh, that is fantastic. So it sounds like it's warm weather for both of you as well as us. 93 degrees today. Yeah, it's hot. It's a hot one. Hot and humid. But at least it's not like Iran where I understand it was like 168 degrees yesterday. Oh, jeez. So we have it nice and cool here. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, We got a a little background noise. All of a sudden it just creeped up uh, with you, Stephen. Oh, I think it's, uh, it's that... Again, Skype trying to sneak on in. Uh, well, no, I, I don't. I, I don't quite think it's that, but um, so, so there we go. All right. And so I was wondering if you can tell the uh, the listeners uh, a lot more about you. Sure, happy to. What do you want to know? So how did it, how did you uh, your background a little bit of how did it, it come to be how were uh, how were you uh, where did you start out in the industry how did it, uh, Rainstorm Entertainment become uh, where we're at today how did it transition from that from a lawyer sure all of it. That, that's a that's a lot a bit what they would call a big compound question. But um, essentially, I was an attorney before I was a producer, and I did that for about 20 years. And about, I guess it was 1999, I was asked to help some friends of mine who were also filmmakers to um, set up their first feature film. And as I got involved in it from a lawyer perspective, Um, I found myself enjoying it, even though I didn't go to film school, I soon found myself uh, deep in the throes of actually having to produce the film. So it was a really terrific experience. The movie was called Terror Trap. It starred John Ritter and and, uh, Brian Cranston from Malcolm in the Middle and, and most recently Breaking Bad. 
And the movie worked out great. You know, we sold it. It got a, a, a small theatrical release and, and a big home video and TV deal. And we made many times our money, uh, you know, many times our investment. And, um, and after that, I started mm -hmm. doing about a film a year or so for a few, a few years while I started Rainstorm with, at the time, my brother-in-law. And um, after a few years, uh, he and I went our separate ways, and I continued to run uh, Rainstorm um, Entertainment, which is a family of companies. We have a music division, and we do distribution, and we rep films, and we have a small management business. Um, our primary uh, source of business is film and TV. So, mm -hmm. uh, as about five years ago, I, I, for the most part, wrapped up my law practice and um, went about putting together a, a, a slate of movies that was going to be 10 featured films that were going to be between 20 and $30 million budgets. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, that didn't end up working out. And, um, we ended up in a fight with those investors, but that didn't stop us from continuing to produce our films. We've continued to do, you know, two to three features a year for the last uh, five years, and um, and this year we're we're doing three more, and uh, we're really excited about the movies we have on our on our plate. Mm -hmm. Ah, it does sound very exciting. And so it's like, do you also still have, in terms of that, uh, the law practice actively going as well as the production company? I don't. You know, I stopped practicing law officially about three years ago. And I spend almost all my time now developing um, material that we're going to produce. So um, I write and uh, as well as, as produce our films. And there are a couple of the scripts that I've written, I'm also thinking about directing as well. So I'm going to potentially take my turn behind the director's chair. Very cool. Yeah. And with the uh, with your films, do you have preferences of working with certain kinds of filmmakers or budgets? Well, I would say that Rainstorm is a story-driven company. So we're not a, I wouldn't say we're driven by genre or by budget. I'd say it's much more um, wanting to tell stories that we think are um, going to be captivating to a worldwide audience. Um, I, I have, you know, I have several uh, questions that I definitely want to get to. Um, I know another thing, too, that you're involved in is rainstormmusic.com. Um, um, tell us about that as well. Well, you know, Rainstorm Music is a 360 music management, um, music talent management business. Mm -hmm. So what we do is we represent some artists, um, including uh, bands like Bleach, Communist Daughter, uh, Tower, uh, Hoops, among others. And we do um, all aspects of their, you know, of their management and their, uh, their business, booking their tours, setting up their PR, their, you know, their uh, licensing deals, their merchandising, um, you know, being in the studio with them, you know, while they're recording their albums. Yeah. So we do that for a number of bands. I've got a guy named Scott Hopkins who, who runs it for us, and he's, he's really done a terrific job. Um, you know, now, the, and part of what the goal is is to, crop, is to use the, the music of the acts that we manage in our film project. You know, um, the 360 deals um, are often um, considered controversial. I know a lot of artists don't don't like it, especially veteran artists. Um, what's your take on the 360 deal, being that you guys deal in, in that quite a bit? Well, we haven't had that issue with any of our artists. I mean, they, they like the, the personalized attention that we're able to give them. And, you know, and making sure that their entire business is working together and not at cross purposes. Oh, okay. Oh, that's amazing. And uh, we were talking about just uh, during our commercial break there a little bit about um, digital versing uh, the 35 millimeter days. It's like, uh, so what are your views on that? It's like, uh, you know, are we embracing a future? Are we going to a future trend that you would want? Or shall we bring back 35? 
Well, you know, we, we always love the way that film looks. You know, it has a warmth and texture that you don't necessarily get on digital. But you, you can't forget that, that that digital is the way that everything is going. It's going towards 4K um, and even higher resolution on, you know, what we're able to see um, you know, with our eye, and we get used to that. So, you know, as a company, you know, we are fully embracing the future without forgetting our roots in the past. And I think that what we'll probably end up doing is, is doing most of our films with the dual shooting, both on 35 and digital, um, and potentially setting it up where we shoot initially on 35 and then up it to a 4K output. So we have, you know, both ways of exhibiting the films. Hmm. Absolutely. So it sounds like it, we are still hybriding even all of these years later. Well, we have to. I mean, it's just, you know, the, the, the tough part and the, the exciting part is the fact that, that this medium is constantly evolving. And that's one of the things about it I like the most is that it's constantly changing and you know, and we change with it. And that includes not just the technology, but it includes the stories that the audience wants to see on the screen. Absolutely. We're becoming a much more, the audience is becoming a much more aware audience and they're demanding also in terms of that, it's like not regurgitate the same thing over and over and over again. They want to be stimulated. Yeah, that, you know, that's one thing as independent producers, you know, we, you know, we have the ability to do is, you know, we like telling fresh new stories. You know, we're not going to rehash something out of our library that's been, you know, shot over and over again. Um, that's one thing about studio films that, frankly, I find annoying. And, you know, every time we tell a story, you know, it's new and it's fresh and it's never been told before. Mm. Now, um, looking at your bio, I see that you're attached to produce a biopic on one of the the greatest athletes ever, uh, Hank Aaron. Um, is that still in production or, or, or going to be in production? And um, tell if, is yeah, there anything I, you can I, talk about? Yeah, as of right now, it's you know it's still in the development um, phase. We're um, attaching the director and, and talent to the picture, and then once we've done that, you know, then we'll put together the financing plan and set a production date. Well, I, I have to say, as someone who loves baseball and loves Hank Aaron, you know, um, and his story is amazing, um, I'm definitely going to be rooting for you guys to do a fantastic job because it's a so so much of an important story to tell, and I'm looking forward to that. And um, um, with, have you ever done any other biopics? You know, just finished um, Beth McKagan from Guns N' Roses, the uh, documentary based on his best-selling autobiography, uh, It's So Easy and Other Lies. So that premiered at the Seattle International Film Festival in late May, mm -hmm. and it's slated for a uh, first quarter of 2016 theatrical release through Accelerator. Um, so we're very excited about that, and uh, you know the film's in the final stages of post now. Um, we have a number of other biopics that are coming up. We're going to be doing a, um, a, a narrative version of Vivaldi about the great Italian composer. And a movie that, that uh, I'm very excited about that we have coming up is called White Death about the greatest sniper in history oh, wow. who single-handedly in 100 days um, um, defeated uh, the Russian army during the Winter War in 1940 when he was a member of the Finnish uh, Winter Soldiers and uh, single-handedly held a valley from the Russians and to a large extent was a huge reason why the Soviets ended up pulling out of Finland. Mm. Wow, you know... Sounds uh, like a, uh, some amazing film. stories. Yeah, and uh, uh, with it's that... It's an unbelievable war film. Mm-hmm. And with that comes uh, great responsibility, yeah, too. We're shooting that probably in Canada, I think, and uh, probably toward the end of this year or beginning of next year. In, in telling a, a story 
of you know such important people in history um, comes with great responsibility. How much do you factor in in that in telling you know this uh, these tales of you know these heroes? Well, we try to stay as true as possible to the actual story and not take you know liberties with uh, you know with the truth. And stay focused on you know the you know the really the challenges that some of these people have had rise to in order to, to become the people that they became. You know, that's true with Hank Aaron. It's it's true with Simo Haya, the uh, the White Death, um, who I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. You know, these are people that you know, were placed in extraordinary circumstances. They rose to the occasion and they they accomplished an unbelievable feat. And that's part of the challenge in telling their stories is to make sure we're staying true to that and giving them their just due in bringing that story to a broad audience. And also it's great that, uh, so we're also in Canada. Are you planning to shoot this? We're probably going to shoot that in Ontario, Canada. There's a very significant tax credit there as well as U.S. dollar is very strong against the Canadian dollar. So a significant amount of the budget is going to be absorbed by by a paper as opposed to the uh, equity risk. Canada is a terrific place to shoot, especially for that story. I also see that you've uh, you filmed in Tibet. Um, what was that like? Well, that was an amazing experience. We shot our film State of Control, which is about Chinese secret, China's secret war on Tibet, you know, which is probably the only war in history where the bullets only fly in one direction mm-hmm. um, because of the Tibetans' um, desire to, to be peaceful um, and not fight back. And we ended up shooting on, on uh, hidden cameras in Tibet, Nepal, China, and India. And believe it or not, we started that movie in 08, before the, the Olympics that were held in Beijing, mm-hmm. and we are just mm-hmm. finishing it now. It's taken almost uh, seven years to finish that film. It's been a very difficult journey, but the movie is terrific, and it's being released uh, sometime this year. I have to say, um, it's pretty bold to film uh, that, because, you know, uh, there's some danger there. Um, with the government and such, um, was there any fear at all? How did you do it? I mean, I imagine this must have been under the radar of the Chinese government, or uh, I don't think they would have. I'm just guessing they wouldn't have uh, okayed the, the film, right? Yeah, well, we, we, we definitely didn't pull any permits. So, yeah, <laughs> it was a very dangerous undertaking. And the, the two filmmakers involved in that film, Christian Johnson and, and Darren Mann, really were really brave to um, undertake that risk in, in putting themselves um, in, in harm's way to shoot that picture. And it's, it's a testament to how hard you know, we work as independent filmmakers to be able to bring a story like that, you know, which is really outside of most people's common experience, and be able to share it with you know, the, uh, the public at large. It's, uh, you know, in, in the course of shooting this film, we uncovered the, the story that appeared in the Washington Post that the Chinese government was spying on all communications from U.S. citizens. Your emails, mm. your texts, your phone calls, all being recorded and, and, and uh, hacked in these giant mainframe mm-hmm. computers that, you know, to see if, you know, what America was up to. And um, that was just something that nobody really had an understanding of what, you know, what they were up to until, you know, our film broke that story. Wow. Which is, uh, which is uh, really interesting in regards to that, because with China now playing such a factor in the financing and the fact that they have so many theaters going up at this point in time, like literally I think that they were saying 15 of them a day. Or something like that, and yep. uh, that now that they're becoming such a dominant power in terms of financing, it's like that must have been even more daunting uh, during that time. And now that they're being so open about it, yeah, without it's a 
you know, the world, you know, makes strength for strange bedfellows when it comes to politics and storytelling and filmmaking. Um, you know, the, our ally today ends up being our foe tomorrow. So it's, uh, you know, and that's frankly, it's one of the reasons why I love filmmaking so much is that, you know, we get to learn things about subject matters that we would never get to experience otherwise. Oh, absolutely. And it's like it's forever evolving and there isn't really a way that it's not going to continue to evolve, including also the roles of the sales agents. It's like, so what are your views on sales agents' necessity now that filmmakers are able to make their own, like to be able to even market their own projects via social media and other distributions directly? Yeah, because with social media becoming so popular. Sales agents in order to be able to. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, part of it is we have to have the sales agents to assist us with the, you know, with the range and the distribution for our pictures. Um, there's very specialized sales, sales agents for international rights, just like there's domestic sales agents who are in the business for arranging domestic uh, deals uh, for our pictures in the U.S. and Canada. And it's, you know, it's an, it's an important um, aspect in partnership, you know, between the filmmaker and the distributors is the sales agent. And it's starting to become that fine line that's blurring because also as it's becoming the branding via social media as well as also a lot of popular make it or break it. Um, we spoke how the role of the sales agents is shifting. Um, how does that also affect also the P&A costs as well coming up on that? Well, you know, the P&A costs are, are interesting because, you know, for studios... Um, who are really in the business of tentpole movies, they overspend to distribute, to market these, these films. And frequently, you know, the independent film, you know, we're, we're you know, scrapping, um, putting together a marketing plan that makes sense economically to be able to reach the broadest audience at the, at the least expensive cost. And that is an art form. You have to be very creative in how we do it, whether it's through direct marketing to the target audience, you know, through the Internet. Um, you know, because a lot of the, the ways that studios market their films and billboards and television and radio is just cost prohibitive for the independent. So the P&A factor, you know, is a significant um, aspect that we have to look at, you know, when we're thinking about how the film, you know, is going to be released into the marketplace. Most definitely, because uh, also with a lot of filmmakers, they're now uh, collaborating a lot with distributors in regards to the P&A uh, uh, as well, and also absorbing some of those costs. I'm sorry, I'm having some trouble hearing that last question, I guess. Oh, I was saying that uh, it's like, uh, what are your views on the fact that it's like a lot of filmmakers are now uh, participating along with the distributors in P&A costs as well as also the marketing campaigns. It's forever evolving. Uh, this is a new evolution in that because it used to be the distributor handled everything. Now it's being actually asked of you to put it in your budgets. Yeah, that's, that's a definite... Um a definite strategy that we've been availing ourselves of is to buy down the cost of the studio's P&A by um, coming uh, in with some of our own financing into that as well. And that way we can um, reduce the expense and also actively participate in the distribution and marketing for our, our film. And that's important because, because, you know, we know our film much better than the distributor does. You know, we know we made it for, we know what's working, what's not working, we've done a lot of that research, where the distributor is really just trying to get it into the hands of the consumer that's going to spend money and that they can collect that those funds as, as the film is being uh, watched and consumed. Um, is it all about the bottom line? Um, or, I mean, I know, you know you're a businessman and that's a very important but um, are you? Do you consider yourself someone who's trying to make uh, art? Well, I would say there there is a partnership between the money, the business, and the art, and the creativity, and you have to honor both. 
Mm-hmm. So I would say that at least for rain, as rainstorm is concerned, you know, we're um, very, very cognizant of our investors in, in maintaining their the possibility for them to recoup their investment and make a profit, um, and then roll those profits over into future films. And on the art side, you know, making movies that are, are um, creatively pure, you know, that they're not being um, subjugated or prejudiced by the money, so to speak. And that means we're thinking about casting the right actors, bringing the right directors appropriate for the material, and shooting the film in a way that stays true to the promise of the script. Um, and, and that is a very important criteria for us, is the script. So, you know, that's where it all kind of starts and ends for us, is what's on the page. And, you know, the, the script's got to work. And so, you know, we look at... Um, you know how we're going to put that together from both the business side and the, and the creative side, um, so that those can work hand in hand. Um, when something's in production, what keeps you up at night of all the aspects of uh, <laughs> of uh, you how know. about how about everything? <laughs> how about everything? I frequently when you know when I get asked that question, you know I you know I, I give the example that filmmaking is all like playing football except I'm not playing on the filmmaking playing field the football field is filled with minds that are um, independently programmed and not just travel underground but they travel above ground and they jump out of the ground and you can get killed any number of ways if you're not thinking about what it is you're doing so you know there's a lot of ways that uh, films can go awry everything from not having rights Locked down to conflict with the investors to you know environmental issues that come up weather etc um, to unavailability of critical cast or crew um, there's any number of things that can happen and we have to think about all of it when we're producing. Mm-hmm. What about uh just personal? Yeah, it all keeps, it keeps me up at night all the time. What about yeah? Uh, and we've had that happen too. I've had I've had an investor pull out two days before we start shooting. Oh jeez. And then we have to make up the difference. Yeah, wow. I mean everything you can, everything you can imagine. I've seen. I see it. I see it as a lawyer. I see it as a producer. I see it as a filmmaker. As someone creating the material. You know, I've worn all those hats, and in wearing them, you know, I've become acutely aware of you know what the dangers are, and what the potential pitfalls are on the project. Uh, what about Absolutely. just the, the personalities involved? Um, you know, in productions and stuff like that, and just dealing with people who have that right mindset. How do you, I know you've been at it for a while, how do you gauge who do you want to even get involved with on a, just on a personal level, not you not just what they can bring to the table? Well, you know, for us, it's really important that, that we get along with the people we're collaborating with. So I would say that's a, uh, a big priority for us in terms of who we team up with is working with people that we like personally because, you know, the filmmaking process doesn't end when the film is released. We've got to, you know, after it's released, we have to collect the money, we have to distribute the money, you know, we've got, we're marketing the film, you know, we're continuing to be in business with these people. So, you know, we want to be working with people who we like personally and that are also talented. So both those things come into play when we're deciding who we're going to work with. Oh, absolutely. It's uh, about personalities as well in our industry. And also, yeah, it's like, so what do you think of, of your views of place? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Views on what? So, uh, it's like I was going to say also the views on uh, collaborative efforts between different countries, different uh, people within the production as well. So what are yeah. your views on I mean, those? It's all of those factors. Well, you know, you, you know, one of the things that I do is I, I typically find myself going to major film festivals like AFM and Cannes, Berlin, Toronto. Um, you know, where we're really seeing the buyers for the films as well as the, the U.S. distributors, other filmmakers, and other investors who you know, go to these markets and festivals and we see the trends that way and we see, you know, who we want to be in business with and who we don't want to be in business with. So, um, you know, it's all taken into account 
you know, when we're thinking about putting a movie together as to whether or not, you know, we can do it and do it effectively. And, you know, who we're going to partner with on the distribution side as well as the investment side. And then, obviously, how we're going to collaborate with our filmmaking partners. Is it is it still... Owen. Is it still, like, fun like it was maybe in the beginning? Or is it has it gotten to a point where it's just business? I mean, or do you still have, like, a ball doing this? Well, I, I still have fun doing it. And, I, and, you know, I'm the kind of person that if I'm not having fun, I'm not going to do it. So... You know, that's a big part of it is enjoying what we're doing every day. And I still love it. And I'm still passionate about it. See, you have to, uh, it's like, it's great to always keep that passion. And also understanding it's like, and yes, definitely places like the AFM are amazing for following new trends. So what do you think is going to be the next big film trend in terms of areas that you'd want to be involved in? Well, you know, it's, uh, I was just thinking about that the other day. It looks to me like the Western is coming back. Yes. You know, there's a couple of, of pretty big Westerns coming up, including The Revenant with uh, DiCaprio and Tom Hardy, which look really interesting. And even though the, uh, the stories I'm hearing from the set are pretty frightening, <laughs> um, you know, that's a very spectacle genre as Westerns. Um, there's a couple projects I've been taking a look at, you know, that I think are going to be interesting. I think we're going away from, you know, from war films. I kind of feel like we're going more towards romantic comedies, and and uh, I, I think we we haven't seen the last of the superhero movies. And you know, we've actually been developing a kind of failed superhero film that we're going to be starting um, prep on shortly called Heroville, which we're really excited about. So, you know, I think that. You know, there's certain themes that, you know, that kind of track what's mm-hmm. happening in pop culture and popular culture. You know, redemption is a pretty strong theme for me. And, you know, one that I'm interested in telling stories that have that theme. Yeah. With regards to redemption, it's uh, the... It's the anti-hero, or is it more the also redemption in terms of the person who it's like is redeemed from a bad situation? Yeah, I how, think it's both how are you things. feeling that I the redemption that, story? You know, well, you know, look, I think people love to see people fall and fall hard, and there and there's no story Hollywood loves more than the story of somebody who who recovers from that and rises to amazing heights and in doing so redeems themselves or their family or the country and that's you know that's an important thing that's something that i think everybody relates to and um you know and i find that a lot of the films that we're working on have that as, as a major part of of the uh, the backstory hmm. what about uh oh, what most about, definitely is what about kid-friendly entertainment um I know there's been a lot of, uh, especially the animated films have, uh, have been killing. It seems like those are licensed to print money, but um, but beyond that, you know, maybe live action stuff. Uh, what's the the market like uh, currently, and um, w- what do you think about that market of uh, kid friendly stuff? Uh, a family friendly film. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, you know, look, I think there's always going to be a place for family-friendly films. And we just recently were involved with a retelling of the Black Beauty story, which Lionsgate just released uh, this month. And the reality is that moms and dads, they, they want to hang out with their kids and they want to they want to see films that tell a, a you know, story that's going to be uplifting to their kids and it's suitable for those kids. Um, you know, my daughters are now, you know, 18 and 16, so... You know, they're not little kids anymore, and so they tend to go for more of the, the Marvel comic-type film instead of, like, you know, the mom and the dad the horse. But I think there, there's always going to be a place for that kind of entertainment, you know, for families to see it together and, and um, you know, be able to be entertained at the same time. And, you know, I don't have any children, but, uh, you know, I'm really close to my uh, my brother and sister, my brothers and sisters' children. And, um, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. I have them stand with me during the summer. And uh, God bless anybody who makes uh, kid-friendly programming that I can watch. 
<laughs> because some of the stuff I just yeah, don't that, get. You're, that you're entertained and they're entertained too. Because that's, <laughs> isn't that the challenge? Oh, making man. a film that the parents, you know, or the adult is is entertained by that entertainment and not bored to tears while you know while their kids are they're like Teletubbies. I just hope that no one ever makes a Teletubbies movie. I just pray for that. Oh, it's coming. <laughs> yeah, you know it's coming. No, no, te- no Teletubby yeah. movies. <laughs> yeah, it's like absolutely yeah, now, not. Now, maybe it'd be good. It, it, it would be almost as bad as Wiggles the movie. Enjoy that. Oh, yeah, yeah Minions, yeah. That's yeah. good. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that's kind of, that's kind of, you know, I know it's for kids, but, you know, they, 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 they looked out for the adults with that one. <laughs> they definitely yeah. did. So, yeah, until you watch it twenty times. <laughs> well, I shoot any some, even good movies twenty times will get you know after a while you know <laughs> you get uh, bored. Yeah, that's right. So, yeah. So. Absolutely, and as we're becoming also like a more global uh, global with the finance and production sides, and that they're evolving the filmmakers' process. How do you feel that we're becoming a more global in terms of the way of that? Filmmaking is being demanded as well as audience tastes. Well, you know, I, you know, that's a really great question. The, um, it really goes a number of ways. I think filmmakers become much more sophisticated in understanding that their films need to be, uh, they need to be thinking about how they're going to reach a global audience. And, and there are, there's a lot of other countries on the planet Earth than, than just the U.S. So frequently, you know, our films are going to be digested, you know, in, in numerous countries. So that's important for us to recognize that. And, you know, and one of the things that that does is it brings audiences closer together and creates an opportunity for people in different countries to gain a better understanding of other nations and not just be uh, myopic of their own. So, you know, I think all of that is, is important, and I think that especially now with the ability to reach that audience through the internet, you know, at any time that we can we can reach a much um, broader range of people around the world because we're not as dependent on theaters in order to be able to uh, get our content to other countries where the people can see it. They can see it on their devices. They can see it on in the theaters. They can see it on TV. They can it's being broadcast into satellites. All those are ways of really just coming to the fore over the last ten years, and you, before that, it was it was really a theatrical business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, I think it was uh, Steve Sodenberg and Mark Cuban. They had this this thing where they were pushing this idea of the movie coming out in the theaters, uh, cable as well as uh, DVD, all on the same day. And I know, uh, and I think there's been a couple of other releases like that. Do you think that model uh, could work at all? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, what you're referring to is called day and date. Mm-hmm. And the idea is to release it on multiple platforms all around the world on, at the same time. And, you know, one of the reasons for that is to try to combat piracy. Because right. frequently films can be released and they're pirated within days of the time that they hit the theater. And that means that people aren't paying for that content. So it's a, piracy is a huge problem because it then becomes a way of dissuading people from investing in films if they think that their investment's going to be stolen from them before they even have an opportunity to reap the reward. Um, but I don't think anything uh, takes away from or, or substitutes for the experience of being in a big theater, right. watching a film on a big screen with an audience that is reacting to what they're seeing in front of them. And that emotion, you just don't get watching a film on your iPad or your iPhone or your TV when the audience is an audience of one. So, I, you know, as a filmmaker, I think it's important that every movie have at least a theatrical life. If, it, if you're going to spend the time and the energy and the money to make it. Um, so, from that perspective, what you know, what I would like to see is that there'd be a theatrical window for our film, and then do a day and date release on all other platforms. You know, thirty days later, so you can see it on Netflix, you can watch it on TV, you can buy it in your video store, download it on your iPad. But that shouldn't um, conflict with the ability to get that film into the theater in the first instance. Mm-hmm. 
we're fortunate because uh, we are also living in the golden age of television, as they call it. And there's a lot of great programming on television as well as Netflix and uh, Amazon Prime, Hulu. Um, I heard Google uh, is going to be producing some stuff as well yes. as some other platforms. And um, so, you know, as, as you, I know you work in uh, uh, feature films. Um, do you have, would you get into the TV uh, market at all, maybe, with some of these uh, platforms? Yeah, well, we've. Yeah, well, we've actually developed a few television shows and we're in the process of putting together. But unlike films, you know, where we're acting as the producer, you know, on a television show, there's typically someone who's the showrunner mm-hmm. who um, is, has very specific experience in television, which is beyond, you know, what my experience has been. So we've developed and are continuing to develop a number of TV properties that at the appropriate time, I'll bring in a showrunner and, and sell these shows. And, and in that case, we really are acting as an executive producer and creating the idea for the show, but somebody else is doing the day-to-day work in producing it, which is very different than making a film mm-hmm. where we're involved in every aspect of, of that process. I wanted to go back a little bit also on what you were mentioning about with piracy as well. It's like now that there are also newer mediums of being able to secure uh, the film in terms of piracy, it's like also platforms as well that have come out like Slated, uh, uh, Digital Film Cloud, a lot of these other networks. It's like being able to get the films to uh, the distributor and from the distributor to the exhibitor in more safer manners. Are you finding that it's like we're actually making a dent into piracy in your opinion or do you feel that it's almost as though that's going to the pirates like okay let's try and crack the code (laughs) well look I think the first part of it is having people understand that it is wrong to pirate a film it's wrong to take someone's property without paying for it and that's an educational process and I think that, that um, you know, the, the studios and government can help a lot by educating people, uh, not just that it's wrong, but there's going to be potential ramifications to someone personally by, um, by engaging in piracy. And, and what that would be is a copyright infringement. And, you know, in the case of The Hurt Locker, which is one of the most pirated movies ever, the producer went and sued a number of people who they were able to catch pirating the film. And there's very significant penalties financially as well as potential jail time for engaging in piracy. I think a lot of people don't consider that when they're downloading something for free and using you know, uh, services where they're you know, able to download something for free and not pay for it. Mm-hmm. But part of it is getting people to understand philosophically the same way you know it's wrong to go into a 7-Eleven and take something without paying for it, people have to understand that it's not cool to be a pirate. And for a while, I think a lot of people thought it was cool to download that content and not pay for it. So that's part of that educational process in getting people to understand that when they are pirating something, they're stealing the same way they'd be stealing from 7-Eleven. You know, when people understand is, Absolutely. is when they create something and it gets pirated and all of a sudden they hate pirates. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah. yeah, or, well, or somebody listen, they it know. It goes directly to the people investing in films. I mean, why are you going to invest in, in something if it's going to just be stolen from you? Right. You won't. And that means less movies will get made. So, you know, if people you know, want to see cool and interesting films, they should support those filmmakers by paying for the content. A lot of times as well that the producers t- take a smaller fee as well within the process as well. So, And that they're hoping on the back end points to actually make out their salaries as well from the years of the, that they had spent producing the uh, film itself. So with these piracy... Yeah, that's a big uh, part new- of it. I mean, yeah, I mean, you, you know, look, yeah. you're, that's absolutely something that affects every single person in the production. Because if there's if the film is going to be pirated and stolen, or we're not going to be able to realize the profit, you know that that revenue stream that we're counting on evaporates. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's for sure. Yeah. And 
so now I'm glad about these new, uh, these wonderfully new measures that are being taken in where it's like literally if they don't have the code for the actual drive that's being presented to them or the actual uh, thing to unlock the film that in a lot of, uh, in a lot of ways with places like DCFN and, uh, as well as also slated as well and other platforms as well, that it's like, if it, that you cannot unlock it by the digital code, then you cannot unlock the film. So therefore, at least in the, honesty of the projection dis- exhibitor and it's like it's also improving yeah i think that's true so technology that's- is definitely helping to uh reduce the effect of piracy you know at least on feature films and also the bandwidth is, is much bigger than the song for example it just takes longer to download it and it's a much bigger file hmm. so um it's like, do you, sorry, just one more thing I wanted mm-hmm. to also ask. Do you also um, use any encryption software with regards to when you are doing the transfers and deliverances as well? Yeah, I mean, we have, you know, we do post. That's something that we really, you know, leave to our post-production house to put together. And, you know, sometimes they, they put a digital stamp on the film so that, you know, we know where it's going and, and uh whether or not it's being pirated. So technology will go a long way to help uh, reduce the impact of piracy. And, and I've always felt that the combination of education um, in prosecuting people that are engaging in piracy as well as technology to reduce the impact of, of piracy, is, you know, those three things together will help bring that, that uh, prospect down and, and minimize its impact ultimately on, on uh, filmmakers. Now you've been in a oh, bu- absolutely. you've been in the business f- uh, for quite a while, so I imagine you must uh, meet a lot of uh, young people trying to get into business as well. Um, do they ask for advice, and if if so, what did what do you generally tell them? Well, you know, I, I love to mentor young people and, and give them advice to help them, you know, forge the best way possible into the business. Um, you know, it's a really difficult business, no question about it. And, you know, you got to pay your dues one way or another. You know, I paid my dues by being a lawyer, and, and a lot of film and entertainment you know, has to do with the law. So, you know, that was my, paying my dues. But... You know, whether you're going to film school or you're, you know, reaching out to, you know, more senior filmmakers so you can, you know, learn as you go, one way or another, you're going to, you know, you have to get your hands dirty if you want to be able to, to uh, play, you know, in this business. It's, you know, it's, a t- it's tough. It's unforgiving in a lot of ways, but it's very fulfilling, you know, that, you know, if you are doing it and, you know, doing something you're passionate about for your livelihood. Okay. Oh, definitely. And also, I want to—it's uh, like I wanted to also ask in regards to. So, do you think that we're also moving away from slate franchises to, uh, or are we re-embracing the slate franchise, or is it going back from uh, what you would say franchise to singles uh, with lots of legs, or how would you uh, describe it? It's the trend well, is now going uh, in that yeah, sense. Yeah, I would say that for the studios, they really need to focus on a, a um, franchise-type business, a tentpole-type business, because they're spending a lot of money, and they've got a very, very expensive machine to feed. You know, for independent filmmakers, we don't have that same economic pressure that the studio has. That gives us more, more freedom and flexibility to do films that, in a lot of ways, are more provocative and more interesting and, and would in a lot of ways never be made by studio. And I think it's telling that every year for the Academy Awards, you know, there's 10 films nominated for Best Picture. Almost every year, you know, most of those are independents and they're not studio films. Um, because that's not the studio's business. You know, they're in the oil business. They're in the pipeline business. Uh, they're not creating and, um, you know, in distributing their own content. They're distributing the content that's being created by independents. Hmm. Absolutely. And just wanted to also know, uh, in regards to your opinion of proof of concept uh, package uh, and mm-hmm. packages that you'd want to see 
and how do you find them useful to seeing the new person's vision or to seeing like a person's vision that you'd want to work with? I do. I mean, seeing, you know, what is in their mind about, um, you know, how they're visualizing the story they want to tell is, is really an important criteria for us in evaluating whether we're going to get involved on any given film. Um, you know, filmmaking is a visual art. So, you know, it's great if it's a terrific script, but you also have to be able to see the promise of what you're going to see on the screen. Very important. <laughs> so you also embrace then also the crowdsourcing and crowdfunding components as well? I, I do. I mean, I think it's the right kind of film. It's, it's um, really important, especially something where there's, you know, a big fan base, whether it's a book or, you know, uh, you know a musician or something where there's a fan base behind it and there's already built-in interest from people. I think it's really important to be able to tap into that. It frees you up. You know, it frees you up from having to be dependent on investors or distributors to make a film and you could take more risk. Creatively. Creative risk. Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. And then, so now it's proof of concepts also becoming a more incorporated part of the package or and as well as these crowdsourcing components or are you finding that this is becoming a more popular way of being able to present the package or a less popular way of or is it more of a turn-off than turn-on? I would say less. You know, I would say it's, it's less, um, generally, because, you know, there's just so many of those um, crowd fundraising campaigns that I think they get lost in the din. Where it's effective is when you have a subject matter that people are really passionate about. And they can get behind it, and they're they're already interested in it. It gives them a way to to more actively participate. I think I've read some studies that say that for every one person who participates in a crowd fundraising campaign, it actually there's ten other people you know, who are their friends who are also touched by that campaign and has an impact on ultimately on you know who's adjusting that content. Because one of the great things about it is you're building up your fan base while you're making the film, as opposed to using marketing and P&A to reach that audience after the fact. And now you're involving your audience from the very, very beginning to the very, very end. And are you finding also that by having these things as well, like the uh, having the crowdsourcing, having the proof-of-concept trailer, at least, for it, that it also gives you a chance to get introduced to new talent as well as also existing ones? Or would, yeah, uh, would mean, you really completely dismiss those? I would not dismiss at all. I think it's you know, one of the exciting things about this business is, is we're always finding new and exciting talent that you didn't, you know, that you're discovering. And that's also one of, I think, one of the aspects of film festivals that's exciting is that, you know, you're going to find that new director that, you know, you didn't know about or that incredible new actor who just blows the audience's socks off with their performance. Um, you know, that's the best way of discovering that talent is, in, you know, in that way of viewing, you know, the films that we're making. Yeah, and it definitely is an exciting way of being able to really have the uh, the interest of finding new, creative, innovative ways. Also, understanding if you can collaborate with the person as well. Do you find that it also can give you a good gauge for you as well, the proof of that? Of being able to Absolutely. collaborate with them? Yeah, I mean, when you see how, you know, how they operated... In, in creating the art that they've created, you know, if we're talking about the film festival route, you know, you're also seeing them in, in a, a social setting, you know, during, you know, film festivals are very social, um, unlike, uh, you know, going to a, a movie where, you know, you're in and out for two hours and most of the time you're not talking to the person next to you. There's a lot more social interaction in the festival. So, you know, you're, you're getting developed relationships with these people, um, beyond the fact that you're seeing your film, you know, you're having a drink with them at a bar, you know, or you're, or you're meeting them at a party. Those are all great ways 
for us at least, to develop the relationships with the creatives. Uh, most definitely. Kinte? Yes, uh, before we get out of here, I, I wanted to talk yes. to you about something uh, a little off, off topic. Um, I see that you are a, a, a scuba diver, an avid scuba diver. I am. Yeah, I've done about a thousand dives, and, and one of the films, one of the scripts I wrote that I made direct is, um, you know, one of the reasons I wrote it is because half the movie um, is set underwater and the other half is on a boat. So two of my favorite places to be, underwater on a boat, I wrote into my story I'm trying to tell because that's the kind of, that's the movie I want to make is combine the passion I have for the sea and, and scuba diving with, you know, storytelling. I haven't started scuba diving yet, but I, I want to, um, before the summer's out, um, learn how to do so. And um, so the question... Oh, you got to do it. It's the greatest thing ever. Mm. It's the greatest. Scuba wow. diving is great, unless, of course, you get eaten by a shark. <laughs> you know, that rarely happens. Rarely happens. I, I love scuba diving. And there's, we there's don't have nothing I enjoy more. <laughs> I think yeah. if you're scuba if you're scuba diving, you're safe from the Sharknado, by the way. Uh but um Yeah, I actually one of the one of the most interesting dives I did mm-hmm. was I went on a night dive where I went I dove and swam into a cave full of sleeping sharks at night. <laughs> that wow. is fascinating. I mean literally you know, these sharks are all in this cave, and I'm moving them out of the way as I swam, you know, in their midst. It was it was an amazing thing to see. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> amazing once you've gotten back to land safely. <laughs> I might have uh, uh, <laughs> I might have alerted them when I freaked. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah through your panic. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, oh, man. Uh, dang, how many do you think was there? How, how many would you I say were there? About a thousand. Oh, jeez. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you made yeah, it safely. So you're bo- one of my favorite things to do. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm glad you Definitely. made it safely. <laughs> yes. Are you both Nelly and uh, what is the other one certified? I'm sorry, what was that? Are you, uh, what sort of, uh, uh, do you have all, uh, you, so you have your oh, pro diving I'm, certifications I'm as well? Well, there, yeah, there's Maui, Maui and there's Patty. So I'm a Maui and I'm a master diver. Yeah. Oh, nice. Okay, so you're Maui certified. Yeah. So now this brings yeah, me to a fun. very interesting question. What is the ultimate mm-hmm. film that you will want to, uh, to be involved in and direct? What is the one that is the project that is the passion project that you want in breaking through? Or the, I well, should say the yeah, project that is going to be the one that you yeah, want. Yeah, that I'm very excited about. Yeah, that's the one I was, that I was mentioning that, uh, you know, is, is a shot, you know, underwater and on the boat. Um, you know, that's a really near and dear to my heart subject and, and one that I'm really looking forward to telling. Hmm. That's gonna be a lot of fun. Really Very excited. Cool. Yeah, I, I'm I excited. want to see yeah. it. <laughs> I, I've I've actually yeah. uh, <laughs> I, I've been wanting to, to learn for a long time. Oddly yeah. enough, there was a movie that got me really excited about it, but it, you're gonna think it's odd because it was that movie Open Water, uh, where the scuba divers end up dying at the oh, end. Oh yeah. But that actually made me go. You know what? I want to yeah, scuba I, dive. I, <laughs> That's kind of. I funny. actually had that happen one time where I came up and the dive boat had left. Mm. And I had to swim to another island and then call the dive shops and then to send the boat to come pick me up. Oh, wow. Very cool. <laughs> well, I'm glad, yeah, yeah, once again, I'm glad you made it. Yeah. But, but you were very experienced yeah, at that too. point. <laughs> yeah, you were very experienced at that point, right? Yeah. So, okay. Yeah, and at that point, I, I, I had a lot of anger that was driving me forward. <laughs> wow. All right, so um, how can people get in contact with you via social media or your website or such? Yeah, I mean, use the website. They can email me at the Steve at RainstormEntertainment.com. Um, I'm on Facebook, LinkedIn. Easy enough. All right. What about you, Gray? 
Well, you can get a hold of me uh, via Facebook, LinkedIn, iHeartRadio now. Uh, uh, yay, our uh, iHeartRadio family. Um, at Superstar with Rock Against Hunger. Goodness. Um, LinkedIn. Gosh, uh, like I said, that if you can't find me on the, know, uh, right? on the net, you're, you're just... LinkedIn. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's like, uh, I yeah, always say that media, if you can't find me on the internet, you're not stalking me hard enough. <laughs> yeah, social media. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. social media is yeah. awesome. Yeah, for for meeting you know really good people, and especially in the field that you're in, or or meet really crazy people. So you gotta make sure <laughs> that you you find the right ones. Yeah. Um, you can get me at Kente F, and uh, next week, um, do we have the the guest for next week, uh, Gray? And uh, that will be uh, coming up very very shortly. Oh, okay. But let's just say that uh, we are talking from England. Oh, okay. All right. Oh, okay. Good. All right, uh, Idris Elba. Yep. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on the show. Thank All you. All right. Thank you. And thank you very much, Stephen. All right. My pleasure. So I guess we'll, we'll see everybody next week right here. <laughs>